HD Insights podcast is brought to you by the Huntington Study Group. The Huntington Study Group is a nonprofit research organization dedicated to conducting clinical research in HD and providing critical training on HD to healthcare professionals. Funding for this podcast is made possible through the generous support of listeners like you and sponsorship grants from organizations like Genentech, Teva Pharmaceuticals, Neurocrine Biosciences, Unicure, Vasinex, and Wave Life Sciences. Hello, and welcome to the HD Insights Podcast. I'm Kevin Gregory, Senior Director of Education and Communications for the Huntington Study Group. And today, I'll be joined by Dr. Niccolò Zarati. Dr. Zarati worked on the first national guidance on psychological interventions in the United Kingdom for people with HD, ALS, Parkinson's, and multiple sclerosis, which was recently published by the British Psychological Society, or BPS, in liaison with Lancaster University. Originally from Italy, Dr. Zarati moved to the UK to pursue a PhD at Lancaster University, investigating emotional processing and communication in people with Huntington's disease. This was followed by a postdoc on ALS at the University of Sheffield. He is currently pursuing a doctorate in clinical psychology at the University of East Anglia, while continuing to carry out research on psychological approaches to neurodegenerative diseases like HD. On this episode, Dr. Zarati speaks at length about the guidance on psychological interventions, what he learned throughout the course of that research, and why he considers that publication a call to arms for the criticality of psychological support in HD care. All right, Dr. Zarati, thank you so much for joining us here on the HD Insights podcast. I, I really appreciate your time today. Uh, thank you for having me. Now, now, really absolutely. And now before we get too far into the specific aims and the focus of uh, this recent work, can you first tell us about the genesis of the research? What was the inflection point that really brought it into being? Yes, absolutely. So we, as a group from Lancaster University, um, we, we, we got really interested in, in developing resources for people with uh, motor neurodegenerative conditions in general. And uh, we eventually focused on four motor neurogenetic conditions in terms of psychological interventions, uh, which includes uh, obviously Huntington's disease, but also Parkinson's, multiple sclerosis, and motor neuron disease. Now, motor neuron disease is also the term we use in the UK for uh, what is more commonly referred to as uh, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, ALS, in, uh, in the US. And we, what, what we wanted to create was uh, a guidance for uh, the first UK national guidance, certainly, in fact, for uh, these kind of conditions, because uh, there is quite um, a paucity of, of, of evidence at the moment. Uh, there is some variance between the conditions, and we, we can talk about that uh, a bit later. But uh, as, a, as an overall uh, attitude towards these conditions, I have to say I didn't really see uh, I didn't really see uh, much evidence. We didn't really uh, find much evidence uh, for psychological approaches, and that can be for a number of reasons, I believe. But um, HD in particular is the condition where we found the the smallest number of, uh, of, of pieces of evidence. So uh, I'm, I'm particularly keen on. Uh, on, on the drive for, for HD, really, because uh, that's the, the condition I did my PhD on. And I, um, and I really believe that uh, it should receive way more attention than it does now from a psychological perspective. I understand that there is a lot of drive, as it's very understandable, uh, for finding a cure. But uh, we need to, to understand also that uh, HD is a long-term condition. It's a chronic condition. Uh, people get diagnosed uh, halfway through their lives if we don't count juvenile HD. Uh, and they live with a condition sometimes for the better part of their lives. And uh, so they, there is obviously a, a strong need for a cure, but also a strong need for finding ways to improve quality of life because people still need to live with a condition for many years to come. So yeah, that, that, that was the reason why we, we, 
we, we approach these conditions because most of them, apart from motor neuro disease and amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, uh, which is a bit different in terms of uh, prognosis, uh, these conditions are not really um, covered by the psychological literature, at least the clinical psychological literature in terms of interventions as much as they, they should, because uh, these people suffer from conditions that will impact their lives for many years, and they need psychological support for many years. Did you, by, by including all four of these conditions together in this research, did that, did that make it more complicated um, by, by adding scope, or, or did it actually make it easier for you to consolidate and, and focus on the, the things that you were trying to learn through the research? Well, um, I would say that generally speaking, it made it easier in a way because the, some of the features are, are very similar. So when, when we focus on motor neurodegenerative conditions, we focus on conditions that, first of all, affect the motor system, uh, affect the way people move. And uh, in a way, they, 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 there are lots of similarities between uh, uh, Huntington's, Parkinson's, uh, ALS, uh, and and then there's I would say probably uh, multiple sclerosis is a bit of a the odd duck in the in that context. The the the, the one bit out because of the, the age of onset tends to be younger. But then again, the impact that the condition can have can be very similar to um, to some of the juvenile versions of uh, Parkinson's and Huntington's, for example. If we think of um, uh, juvenile HD, uh, it, it, it tends to, to, to have an onset around the same age as multiple sclerosis. So in that sense, it helped in trying to get, to get a, a wider understanding of how uh, the literature has been approaching these conditions. And at the same time, I believe, also gave us the, the, the possibility to look into other conditions when evidence was lacking for specific ones. So for example, in the, in the specific case of HD, having seen the evidence for Parkinson's and uh, motor neuron disease, uh, multiple sclerosis has been quite helpful in terms of trying to push things forward because um, at least we, we, we could rely on some evidence that was based on conditions that share some similarities with Huntington's. So we, could, we were not just saying, you know, we need more research, but when they were given no ideas of what to, to do research on, we can actually say, you know, we, we need more research on Huntington's and that could be inspired by the research that's been done on Parkinson's disease, the research that's been done on uh, um, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. So I would say that it's mostly an advantage, rather than a disadvantage to, to group them together. Obviously then the, the, all the, the, the the guidance bits, the, the suggestions need to be tailored for, for each individual condition because they, even though they share similarities, they're, they're definitely not the same. That makes sense. So let me ask you this. What, what do you think, or why do you think the psychological aspect of Huntington's disease has really been lacking kind of the standardized guidance um, for approaching those issues? That, that's a very good question, and I don't think it's an easy one to answer. Um, I think, in a way, that there is a general, as I said, there is a general tendency to uh, underrate the, 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 the important psychological interventions for these kind of diseases in general, not just Huntington's. I think Huntington's, I think HD, uh, suffers generally from a lack of awareness. And, um, and that can be for, for multiple reasons, but I think one of the strongest uh, reasons is that uh, unfortunately HD never had quite uh, famous patients that promoted the awareness for the condition. Uh, if we see again, compared to other, to other motor neurogenetic conditions, so you take Parkinson's disease, you take amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, uh, Parkinson's disease is quite way, way more common than, than HD. So uh, people tend to know it, but then you have uh, very famous people like Michael J. Fox, who uh, actually got juvenile Parkinson's disease and, and, and created uh, the Michael J. Fox Foundation and uh, 
expanded the awareness for the commission massively. You had uh, Pope John Paul II, you had Mohammed Ali, a plethora of, of very famous people who made the, the disease known to the public. Uh, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis is less frequent, uh, but then again, we had quite a few uh, famous patients that promoted this awareness. We had Stephen Hawking in the US, Lou Gehrig uh, actually used, I think it's still sometimes called as the, uh, called Lou Gehrig's disease in, in, in the US. Um, so it was actually named first after a, a, a very famous sportsman and it tends to affect sportsmen more selectively so that that actually is uh, really a bit of an advantage because then people get to know it. Huntington's, I did my, my PhD, as I said, on Huntington's and for, for my, the entire duration of my PhD, I really struggled to explain to, to people who asked me what I was doing, what Huntington's was off the top of my head because they never heard of it. Uh, it, it they only heard of Huntington's if they ever studied genetics uh, or something related to genetic conditions, but uh, there, there, is a, there, there is a lack of pop cultural references, for example. I think that it features, Huntington's features in a couple of episodes of Scrubs uh, or House MD, and that's what I use for pop cultural references. But um, in general, psychological interventions seem, interventions seem to arrive after uh, medical, uh, medical focus, medical interventions, and again, I, I, I would say that in a way it's understandable because first of all, you want to, to, to find a cure, but I would say it's also driven by awareness. It's driven by the awareness that there are people out there that need to live with this condition for many years. And the fact that the people don't know that Huntington's is, or many people don't know that Huntington's is a condition that many people have to live with probably has an impact on, um, or at least it partially explains the the lack of um, psychological literature so far. On the other hand, I also believe that there's, uh, making a bit of a self-critique here as a psychologist, I think that for many years, psychological interventions have thought of uh, some, some severe neurological conditions as non-treatable, and that there, is, there has been a over-reliance on psychiatry as opposed to, uh, especially neuropsychiatry as a, as a framework as opposed to uh, psychological theory. Now, this is a bit changing at the moment, thank, uh, thankfully, and uh, we hope that actually our research uh, helps promote the, this change. Uh, but if we look at the, the imprints, uh, the, the, the leading uh, framework around psychological uh, difficulties in people with, uh, with, with HD in the past 20 to 30 years, that's been mostly neuropsychiatric, uh, and by neuropsychiatric, I mean uh, mostly a medical model as in explaining all kinds of psychological difficulties as uh, medically derived, so as, uh, as organic uh, changes in the brain, which by, by no means I mean that they, they're, they're not entirely, that they're not due to that at all, but they also don't explain all psychological difficulties because we, we, we now know there is a lot of psychological aspects in terms of adjusting to the diagnosis, adjusting to, to the, the stress caused by the diagnosis, the disease, all the, the, the relationship with uh, other family members, considering especially that uh, HD is autosomal dominant. So uh, people who get tested, uh, people who get the, 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 the gene mutation, people who don't, having that sort of conversations in the family, there is a lot going on that is goes well beyond um, the medical model and well beyond just uh, some neurological changes. And uh, this has been taking, uh, has been receiving folk, uh, attention just very recently. Yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. And it's interesting that you draw in the, you know, the experience of those other diseases really having that prominent social figure that kind of drove awareness. And I know Huntington's, Huntington's disease, you know, um, often looks to Woody Guthrie and, and that's somebody that's, that was very well known, but, but also somebody that, you know, that was, you know, many years ago and that you don't have that contemporary um, right now driving interest uh, like you do with the Parkinson's um, or with ALS and, you know, things like the ice bucket challenge that, that kind of, you know, um, 
help drive awareness. How much of it do you also believe too? Is there's a, you know, there's historically been a stigma um, around Huntington's disease and it, you know, being a family disease. How is did you, do you find that's as prevalent in these these other conditions, um, or is this something that you know really bears its brunt with HD? Uh, that that's hard to to answer because first, well, first of all, I'm not uh, an expert in, uh, in in the genetics of HD in that sense, and I uh, and I can only imagine the kind of stigma that genetic diseases have in general. Uh, HD, although. That, that said, HD is a, a, a prevalently genetic disease. It's also more dominant is mostly just genetic, uh, genetically transmitted, while the other conditions are mostly idiopathic as they, they're called in, uh, in the medical literature. So they, 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 they sporadically happen in the population. Now that you have some bits, for example, there is around a 10, 15% of cases of ALS, for example, that are genetically determined. Um, so those would have similar transmission uh, mechanisms to, to HD. Now, in terms of stigma, I, in my experience at least, and, uh, and this is by, by no means exhaustive, but I haven't found much in other conditions. Um, so I think that unfortunately it might be more about HD, uh, but then again, uh, in a way, I think that HD has that sort of uh, that sort of weight on its shoulders because it, it's born as a, a genetic condition and it's born as a condition that runs in families, and it's a it's a condition where the the cause for even though it's it, it's it's always been genetic and uh, we, we've always had. Uh, an idea that it was genetically, since it was described by George Huntington's in the late 19th century, it, it was fairly clear that it was a, a disease that ran in families. We only discovered the gene in, uh, in 1993, in the early 90s, anyways, 1992, I think. Um, so that was very recently. In, uh, in in medical terms, compared to the history of other of other diseases, it was just the other day. Uh, even though there has been a massive uh, movement forwards in terms of finding a cure, in terms of uh, trying to, to to silence, for example, the gene and, and finding some ways to, to eradicate the disease, it's um, it's still very young from that perspective. So it's it's hard to say, really. Uh, I think that. Nowadays, there is more understanding around conditions that are genetically determined, and that's uh, that's good. But also, I think that the psychological uh, aspects have an important role in making these conditions more uh, understood. So it's not just about reading, uh, you know, that some people have a genetic mutation on the long arm or chromosome four that causes this kind of uh, basal ganglia. Uh, um, impairments and, and, and these sorts of neurological neurological symptoms. It's about understanding that there are people with lives, with loved ones, and lots of other people around them that are impacted by a condition that is life limiting, that uh, is devastating, and creates all sorts of uh, psychological and, so and psychosociological impacts. Um, Dr. Zarati, so. Circling back to the the research that you worked on, who who are you hoping to reach with the guidance that that came out? Is it intended exclusively for psychologists, or is it something that you think will be equally beneficial for other members of what you know is hopefully a multidisciplinary care team um, that the HD patient is connected with? No, absolutely, uh, the multidisciplinary team. Uh, we 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 did not write the, that guidance just for. Uh, psychologists, uh, we actually made an active effort in trying not to trying to keep it jargon free, trying not to make it uh, sound too directed towards psychologists. And we, we also include, for example, a, a glossary of uh, psychological therapies and psychological terms at the end of the guidance, specifically because we believe that uh, these kind of conditions and, and including HD, uh, they, they, they're not uh, conditions that are usually 
dealt with in vacuum. They're not just dealt with by a single uh, clinical figure, like maybe may, may a psychiatrist or a psychologist or a neurologist, but uh, by, they're, they're usually managed by a very wide multidisciplinary team. And uh, it's essential that there is communication within the team. So we, we really aimed at uh, providing as much information as possible to as many people involved with the care HD as possible. And, and how much data in terms of existing research or studies were available to you for this effort? And, and you know, did you find that work uh, previously done in HD was on par with other disorders or was it you oh, know, much less common? Much, much less common. So we had, uh, so we actually published a review recently in the Journal of Huntington's Disease. We, we actually entitled the review uh, specifically psychological interventions for people with Huntington's disease, a call to arms, specifically a call to arms because there is so little out there uh, at the moment that we really need uh, a collective effort towards finding uh, the new evidence. So for example, we had um, in general, we found around uh, I think in total something like uh, I think three hundred citations for all conditions together. HD on uh, eventually only had nine studies. Oh wow! So HD was by far the least represented. We only had nine studies included in, in our review, of which only one was um, a randomized controlled trial, an RCT, and not even one specifically addressing uh, psychological difficulties that was uh, mostly uh, addressing aggression. Um, we only found that the, the, the studies that we that, that, that we that emerged from the, the review only covered a very short uh, range of uh, psychological factors, for, uh, which included anxiety, depression, apathy, irritability, and coping strategies. Uh, as I said, the, the the evidence is very limited. We only found some preliminary evidence from low uh, low well low uh, methodologically valuable studies so that for, for example case series or pre-post uh, evaluations uh, about uh, cognitive behavioral therapy uh, and the fact that CBT might be helpful uh, for, for anxiety or depression uh, there is some idea that might also help with um, uh, improving coping skills but that comes from a few limited uh, qualitative interventions, sorry, qualitative studies. Um, and there is not much else. Irritability, there's no, there's no investigation specific in irritability. We, as I said, we, we found some evidence around behavioral relaxation, for example, for aggression, but then aggression is only one part of the equation because you have, uh, that, that's the behavioral part of um, irritability and, and you, you normally distinguish also between every, uh, aggression and anger and the, the emotional side is completely neg neglected um, so there's nothing on uh, many other aspects of uh, of the literature on HD in terms of psychological difficulties that uh, that we know exist for example obsessive compulsive symptoms perseverative behaviors psychotic experiences uh, that, that there's literally nothing out there yet, uh, psychological interventions for these. So we, we really had to, to, to take some inspiration, to draw some inspiration uh, from other conditions. Some of the, the, the suggestions we, we, we drew from other conditions, especially ALS was, for example, uh, using the so-called third wave of cognitive behavioral therapies, so uh, mindfulness-derived uh, kinds of therapy, like mindfulness-based stress reduction, which seems to be showing some promise with, um, with ALS. But as I said, it's something that needs very uh, a big push in terms of high-quality investigations involving high numbers of people with HD. And at the moment, we don't have any of that. 
I was going to say, so in, in addition to the recommendations that also come out of this guidance for, for Huntington's disease, I, I assume one of the, you know, one of the underlying themes and hopes is that this also drives an increased interest in researching those conditions, right? Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's, what, that's why we, 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 we call the review a call to arms, because uh, we, we just want people to realize that this is not just which is obviously the first point, helping people with HD, but it's also an opportunity in research to develop a very underdeveloped um, part of the, uh, of the research field. Uh, and we really hope that this call is heard because um, we need this sort of, uh, sort of research. We, we, we need to understand these issues better. And um, at the moment, it's really sad to see that actually we, we are talking about again people who live 15 to 20 years with this condition so it's not uh, something that is going to stay for for a short term for a short time with them something that is going to accompany them for a very long time and just imagine that they, they have to go through 20 years of receiving little to no psychological advice or guidance because there is no guidance in the first place it's really sad. Absolutely. There's something I wanted to, to, you know, have you speak on too. In the published guidance, um, I read, you know, there's acknowledgement of the influence of the social model of disability. Can yes. you explain to, you know, our listeners what that is and how it can complicate the delivery of effective psychological support for somebody dealing with HD? Yes. So, well, that, that, that links back to the, what I was talking about earlier in terms of uh, the, the dominant framework uh, that has been uh, that has been characterizing HD in the past 30 years to, to, to 40 years. So the idea that we mainly watched that, we mainly looked at HD through the neuropsychiatric lens, uh, especially when it, it comes to psychological difficulties and disabilities for the better part of the, 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 past, the past half century. And that means that there, we, we, there's a tendency to ignore all the other aspects that have a massive influence on uh, what we call disability, what we call psychological difficulties and the inability of people to reach out for support. So the social model of disability takes into consideration all the, all the aspects of society that in, um, that contribute to creating um, the notion of, of disability, which are not only medical, which are not only based on uh, neurological changes. They're based on, as you mentioned, stigma, for example, based on accessibility for people with motor neurodegenerative conditions. For example, if, if you can't move and you can't access a certain place, then you can't receive support for that. They're based on how we perceive people with certain conditions and how we respond to them. Uh, for example, I always think of one of the, of the patients that I, that I saw for my PhD, which really stayed with me as a story because I found it really sad, but also enlightening in terms of highlighting these difficulties. Uh, it was this patient that I, that I interviewed and he told me how much he struggled in, uh, in this little town in, uh, in the north of England when he was going out and about to, to do some shopping, to go you know, to the shops and uh, buy groceries. He always had to bring, to carry with him a card saying that he was not drunk, but that he had HD, that he had a condition that made, me, that made him look like he was walking drunk in the streets because he would be stopped by the police every so often uh, to check why he was uh, behaving like that and uh, why well, he was walking in that way uh, and people would stare at him and that's probably one of the best examples that you can make of the, the social model disability actually taking for granted that uh, people who behave in a certain way are behaving like that not because they because they have a condition that actually makes them look like that, but then they are absolutely not what we assume they are. But uh, we just jump to conclusions and, 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 and don't offer the support that, that these people need. Yeah, that's a, I mean, that's not an uncommon occurrence. And it's just the power of assumption can be, um, 
very confining for patients and 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 people in those um, situations for sure. Um, Dr. Zarati, I know you know you, you've touched on some of them, uh, you know, in the throughout the course of this conversation, but just lumping them together um, in kind of one you know one fashion here, you know, HD has a challenging number of psychological difficulties associated with it, but not everyone may be fully aware of all of them. What, what are the most frequent psychological issues that tend to manifest in Huntington's disease? Well, well, to say that the, 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 the two most common would probably be anxiety and depression. Uh, and that's again, quite understandable because um, that, that, that there's a lot, that, that there's, a, there's a, a plethora of factors that can uh, that can combine to to create anxiety and depression, uh, and again, it's not only the the changes in the brain, which of course can have an impact uh, in the genesis of uh, anxiety and depression, but also the the impact of the of the diagnosis, the impact of knowing that it runs in the family. We 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 tend to forget that, in a way, HD has this sort of extremely um, sort of uncommon situation where a person can be born with the, the, the awareness that they are at risk of a deadly disease. And they, they will always have the, the question whether they have it or not hanging over their heads unless they decide to get tested. Uh, and actually the, 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 the literature around testing is quite interesting in, in understanding the, how people manage this sort of anxiety because very few people, as I'm sure you're aware, actually go for the test in general. At least the last time I checked, uh, the, it was less than 20% of individuals at risk who decided to, to, to get tested. And I would say it's quite understandable. But it's also the fact that if you get tested and you get a positive result, then the test cannot tell you when the disease is going to, to start, uh, when, you, when the onset will be. Uh, so you'll basically just know that you have this sentence uh, of uh, having the, the condition at some point in your life and uh, ultimately dying, ultimately dying of the condition, but not knowing when um, when the condition will start. So, for example, there's now some literature arising around some uh, symptoms of anxiety emerging in people who are uh, tested, who have tested positive but haven't started showing motor symptoms, and there's. Uh, so-called symptom watching phenomenon where people with uh, with a positive test for HD start ruminating and worrying, over, uh, worrying all the time about the symptoms of HD starting out that uh, they might actually uh, confuse symptoms of anxiety with uh, the, the onset of HD and that obviously has uh, all sorts of complications in terms of psychological well-being in terms of uh, interpersonal relationships and then, yes, interpersonal relationship, uh, relationships as well in, uh, at large, if you think all the, the, um, the other aspects involved with uh, having uh, a disease that is uh, running in families, that, is, uh, um, that has a 50% chance to, of being transmitted to, to children, and then people with, with big families would have children who inherit the disease and children who don't. And I mean, we can only imagine what sorts of very difficult dynamics can go can go on in families where half, statistically, half of the of the children will inherit a condition, and the other half won't. The guilt felt by those who don't, the um, the, the the depression, anxiety of those who did, feeling like, well, why me? Uh, their parents feeling guilty for for having given that to their children. So the anxiety and depression in that sense are absolutely understandable at any level. Uh, but as I said, it, it, it's sort of, uh, it's very sad that despite this awareness and despite the fact that we know that we've been knowing this for, for a really long time, we've known this for, for quite a long time by now, uh, there hasn't been any effort so far in trying to find some psychological interventions to address that. 
And so dovetailing off of that, did your research target any specific aspects of HD or was it more broad in nature? So, for example, you know, were you looking at adult onset versus juvenile onset or manifest versus pre-manifest or, or like you said, even at risk versus somebody who knows they're, uh, you know, gene positive? So in terms of the guidance, we focused on um, adult onset. Uh, both pre-manifest or manifest that the, the, well the, the manifest bit is also something that I I feel very strongly about in terms of the, what, what we mean by, by manifest and that's something that I believe should receive further attention in the future as well with, uh, with renewed in, information from the psychological literature because we know by now that um, so well, the HD doesn't start with motor symptoms. We know that uh, cognitive impairment, so behavioral and, and psychological difficulties, emotional difficulties precede uh, motor symptoms by years at times, even decades at times. And yet the, um, the, the agnostic criteria for HD so far only been based on, uh, on on motor symptoms. So if people don't have motor symptoms yet, they are not diagnosed with HD, and we refer to them as pre-manifest. But it makes you wonder: what to to what point does it actually make sense to call these individuals pre-manifest if they've been struggling with uh, psychological or emotional or uh, cognitive difficulties for for years already? So. Um, in that sense, we focused on, we, we didn't really cover juvenile, uh, but that was mostly because all the other conditions don't really have uh, the, the uh, juvenile patients, unless we talk of young onset Parkinson's, but that it's different, very different from, from HD because young onset Parkinson's is considered before 50, while juvenile HD is before 20. So they're very different age groups. But um, I would say that uh, apart from not having focused on uh, on juvenile, and I think that for juvenile there's quite a uh, quite a lot of research going on at the moment from in the Italian group, uh, Ferdinando Squitieri, Simone Migliore, who also have uh, contributed some uh, collaborated with. I collaborated with for some of my studies in my PhD, and they're, they're, they've been doing quite uh, some amazing work for, uh, for with people with juvenile HD. We mostly focused on adult onset HD. But then again, where we draw the line between manifest, pre-manifest, at risk, uh, I mean, at risk, we know it because it depends on whether it's a test, uh, whether there's a test or not. But manifest or pre-manifest, that's something that really needs to be brought back into discussion, in my opinion. We'll return to the interview on the HD Insights podcast in a moment. We hope that you're enjoying this episode. As a nonprofit organization, the Huntington Study Group relies on the generous support from the community and listeners like you to continue bringing you in-depth content on HD, like this podcast series. If you like what you're hearing and are interested in supporting HD Insights through a grant or donation, please contact us through our email address, info at hsglimited.org, or by calling toll-free at 1-800-487-7671. We greatly appreciate your support. And now, back to our episode. There were, there were several recommendations, total recommendations, about uh, psychological interventions in HD from, from, the, uh, from the research. Can you talk about those and their importance to the overall care uh, someone with HD may need? Yeah, sure. So, well, as, uh, uh, as I said, we, we actually weren't in the position to uh, make a lot of, uh, of suggestions of, of, uh, for people with HD, unfortunately, because of, of the lack of, um, of literature. Um, now, in terms of um, what we can say at the moment is that um, when there is some general issues around anxiety and depression, we can sort of follow the, the guidance for uh, that have been produced already for by 
by organizations for people with chronic conditions because it, it, to, to a certain extent they can still help because people with HD are people who are suffering from a chronic condition so some of the aspects might be helpful for example in the UK we have the NICE guidance for depression in individuals with chronic conditions that can be used as an inspiration I, I, I'm sure that you have some equivalent in the US as well um, and, and then when it comes to specific so some HD specific uh, symptoms then uh, as I said we, we don't really have much evidence uh, we might try to uh, to look at well, what, the, what the suggestion would be is to look at the, the guidance made around symptoms per se so for example irritability irritability is very uh, very specific for HD when it comes to motor neurogenetic conditions but uh, there is uh, quite a florid literature around irritability in general irritability difficulties in people in general so that might be feasible in terms of getting a first idea of what to do intervention wise uh, then again uh, there is uh, there is nothing specific and the, the, the most uh, well the, the most important suggestion that we can do at the moment is to to promote research to promote uh, new evidence so um, Obviously, people will have to, especially professionals, will have to deal with, with, with these conditions from a day, on a day-to-day -day basis in clinical practice. And um, as I said, well, I would have suggest uh, referring to specific guidance for specific symptoms when they're HD uh, specific, like um, irritability or apathy, and then general guidance for more generalized uh, difficulties like uh, depression and anxiety. But what we really need to do is uh, pushing this, uh, this need forward forwards and, and making it heard by the community, making it heard by not only researchers, but uh, by policymakers, uh, the government, uh, making them understand that uh, there is a lot of people out there still suffering from this condition that are receiving no support at the moment. Yeah, and hopefully this, you know, even through this podcast, we can help um, emphasize that call to arms that you referred to. Um, I, I'm curious, what do you what do you think the future holds for doing a better job of mainstreaming psychological care for HD patients, and, and what do you think are the biggest barriers um, that right now are currently preventing that? Well, what we found in the UK, for example, is that. Uh, the, the services for, for the, the access to psychological services for people with HD across the United Kingdom tends to be very patchy and unequal. And there are very few uh, services that specialize in these conditions. Now, the, the problem with conditions like HD is that it requires quite a lot of specific knowledge to, to be dealt with. So it's not a condition that you can just send an individual to uh, a generic uh, psychological support service expecting them to know how to deal with it because there, there's quite uh, uh, there's so many factors go, uh, con contributing to, to these psychological difficulties that um, the, the people with HD are not uh, best served by generic psychological well-being services and that's probably the biggest barrier because they're being given that there are no or very little a very few um, uh, specific HD uh, HD services. When people with HD try to access more generalized uh, psychological or well-being uh, services, they, they they get stuck. Either they they fall through the cracks in the system, or they even get bounced back because they are considered to um, sometimes too severe in a way. Quotation marks for for those services. So that's one of the biggest barriers, I believe, trying to, uh, we, we need in the future to create more specialized services that can account for the added complexity of people, not just with HD, but with, 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 with these conditions. I think actually bringing these conditions together will help in terms of creating services that uh, are cost-effective because we have to consider also that when it comes to uh, policymakers, when it comes to the government, 
that there is also an economic aspect of it. So uh, obviously doing so just services for HD might be uh, not that cost effective because unfortunately, uh, well, fortunately in a way, HD is not that frequent, but unfortunately that doesn't help people with HD. Uh, but if we do uh, push the, the idea that we, we can create centers specialized in conditions that have similar uh, features like HD, uh, Parkinson's, ALS, multiple sclerosis. And then those services can specialize in providing specialized psychological services and well-being services and, and uh, addressing even uh, difficulties at a social level, then that will become even more cost-effective because we also have to consider that whenever someone doesn't receive some care, from a psychological perspective, then that cost is not avoided from, from a government point of view. Uh, they, they end up being cared for, for other difficulties. Uh, they, they, are, they either get, uh, get cared for uh, in terms of in pharmacological terms or the, the bill gets back to society some other way. So it's not that by not taking care of the of the psychological difficulties of people with HD, we're avoiding the cost. We're actually just hiding it under the carpet and it's going to, to resurface in another way. And uh, by promoting specialized services, I believe it, it, would, be a, it would be a great way for society to actually address these issues in a cost-effective way. And first of all, address these issues to make quality of life of people with HD much better. Yeah, that's a really fascinating idea, kind of leveraging the synergies from those other diseases um, and conditions. You know, I'm curious, actually, it, it makes me think back to, you know, one other topic we kind of covered, um, which was the fact that those other conditions also have a lot of, um, you know, well-known, I guess, uh, ambassadors or, or people that have, um, you know, dealt with it or are currently dealing with those conditions. I want to ask you this, um, for... Um, in our current environment with the COVID-19 pandemic, you know, that has certainly brought to light psychological concerns for the general population kind of to the forefront. Do you think that our experience coming out of that um, could actually be a silver lining for emphasizing the importance of and providing greater access to psychological services for people with HD? Well, I certainly hope so. Um, there's, there, you're right. There has been quite a um, quite a spike in in psychological difficulties, not just in in people with HD, but um, in general, because lockdown has hit us all, all hit all of us very hard. And um, the problem I would say is that people with HD and in general people with neuro neurodegenerative conditions or people with serious health concerns tend to be at the at the outskirts of society when a crisis happen, happens because uh, the, the most vulnerable parts of society tend to be forgotten, I would say, when, when, a, when a crisis happens. So people who already were quite vulnerable before because, for example, they had HD, then become even more vulnerable during a global pandemic. And sadly, even more forgotten because of the isolation that comes with a global pandemic, the lockdowns, and just imagining all the people with HD who may be living on their own, and all the the, the other difficulties that having a global pandemic may add on, on top of their condition and accessing medications and accessing medical, psychological, social support. So. In a way, I hope, as you say, that uh, the silver lining might be a, re uh, a renewed interest in psychological uh, support. Although I think that that might be more of a general tendency. So that, that, that there is a bit of an awakening at the moment in society saying, uh, yeah, you know, before, before this is gone, we'll, we'll, even before this is gone, and not just after uh, the, the pandemic, we'll have to start dealing with all the, um, the psychological consequences of the, of the pandemic. What I really hope, and I think that that's something that we need to, to fight for, we need to monitor, is that this is not just about generalized services again, but also services for people who already have health concerns, like people with HD, because this is not just about 
providing the, the support which is needed obviously for the people who uh, started having psychological difficulties before because of the, the pandemic but also the people who saw the their already present psychological difficulties incredibly worsened by a global pandemic and that includes people with HD. So uh, um, I'm hopeful but I think we need, as a as a community, helping these uh, people with, with these conditions, to to make their their voice heard. Because, as I said, I think there is a tendency in society to forget about the people that were struggling already before a crisis, and uh, we need to to realize that what 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 for us was a crisis that happened uh, all of a sudden for other people was just the umpteenth issue to deal with on a regular basis. Well, Dr. Zerati, this has been fascinating chatting with you about the research, and I want to make sure we leave enough time that I can talk to you about your personal background, but I would be remiss if I didn't give you the opportunity to um, you know, acknowledge anyone else, any other colleagues or, or yes, um, absolutely. people that were involved in this. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so first of all, my colleagues at Lancaster University, Professor Jane Simpson, who's a professor of actually the psychology of neurodege neurodegenerative diseases. So she, she dedicated her whole uh, life work to, to developing uh, resources for, for, for people with these conditions. And then Dr. Fiona Eccles, who uh, co-edited the, the guidance with with me as well and uh, and then there's been quite a few other professionals that have helped us um, for the guidance in general uh, there are probably too many to mention all but um, for HD uh, we uh, I'd be happy to mention uh, Dr Maria Dale from the Leicestershire Partnership at NHS Trust that uh, is actually working in one of the very few specialist HD specialist services in the UK they're doing some amazing work um, that said it's um, I also wanted to to acknowledge that the HSG in general we have been involved with the HSG since I started uh, studying for my PhD uh, so by seven years ago by now and um, I think the HSG is doing a great job in uh, promoting uh, awareness for HD, in uh, promoting the drive to find a cure, uh, but also being sensitive to, to the need for psychological difficulties. Uh, I really enjoyed uh, coming to the HSG uh, meetings when, when they were still in person, at least. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, I was lucky enough to, to, be, to, to, to be able to attend the, well, the last one that I attended for in Houston because, they, uh, because I was awarded the, the, the Peter Common Scholarship, which is specific for psychological aspects of HD. And I think that having a, um, a, a scholarship that is specifically aimed at psychological professionals is amazing for this this really shows how hsg is ahead of its time in terms of promoting aspects that tend to be neglected in uh, not just hd but these sorts of psychological sorry these sorts of uh, neurological conditions um so absolutely yeah I, I actually hope to 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 bring the the review we've done uh, on psychological interventions to the next HSG meeting, if it's made, uh, if it's going to be in person, I really hope it, it will. Uh, fingers crossed. But yeah, and I, I really want to acknowledge uh, HSG in that sense because it's been incredibly helpful, not just in terms of the work done around people with HD, but also the work done supporting researchers like myself working with HD. Let's let's talk now about um, yourself and your work. So specifically, um, you know, I'd, I'd like to hear about your journey into psychology. I know uh, you're originally from Italy, you know, even though currently you're you're living and working in the in the United Kingdom. Um, what was it that got you interested in this field and, and led you to where you are today? Well, I I was always interested in I've always been interested in um, in neurological conditions and the, the, the psychological impact they can have. I have a, a background in neuropsychology, mostly in terms of my, my, my first studies in Italy. And um, 
I, I ended up coming to the UK to do a PhD, and I did it, as I said, on Huntington's because I found that the literature was so poor already back then, well, still, that uh, it, it really needed more, more than, uh, than what was available. Uh, so uh, when, I, when I started, uh, I would say probably we would add half of the, the results we found so far. Uh, in the in the review that we published, so I would say probably in the, just in the in the last five to seven years, uh, there has been some some bit of awakening in that sense. And none of those uh, the, those citations that we found in terms of interventions were, were produced by us. So at least we know that it's not our work that has produced that. So that it's more of a widespread um, interest. But uh, I believe that it's. Uh, as I said, it, it, it was very fascinating in a way, but also very saddening to see that there was little to no evidence on psychological approaches to, to HD. And I think that there is still so much room for improvement. So uh, even though I, 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 at the moment, I'm not uh, working full-time in research because uh, I, I did my PhD at the Lancaster University in the UK, then I moved on to, to the University of Sheffield for for a year to do a postdoc on an ALS. And at the moment I'm actually training in clinical psychology, which is um, like the sort of the, the equivalent of the, 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 the American PsyD uh, at the University of East Anglia. But, uh, and I'm focusing at the moment more on Parkinson's disease for, for my current thesis, but I, I've always, I'm always holding HD very dear to myself because I, I really think that among all these conditions, HD is the one that has the biggest room for improvement and drawing inspiration from other conditions like uh, Parkinson's. Parkinson's, I think, is one of the, the most prolific communities at the moment in terms of research. And there is so much that we can learn and apply from the Parkinson's community on to the, the HD community. That uh, I believe that, there, as you mentioned, there, there is a need to, to, to create this synergy between Different, uh, different different conditions which have common features. And definitely my aims for the future at the moment are to continue doing clinical research once I qualify as a clinical psychologist, uh, trying to, to bring together these conditions uh, and uh, allow them to inspire each other in a way. I think that there's strength in unity there much more than there is in uh, separation. Absolutely. It, is there anyone in particular that you really consider a role model or a mentor, or so, you know, someone that's particularly inspired you in, you know, your academic pursuits? Hmm, that's a that's an interesting question. <laughs> um, well, I've met many uh, very inspiring academics. I mean, definitely my, my my PhD supervisor, Dr. James, uh, Professor Jane Simpson, she, she's, she's been a great inspiration for the psychological aspect of uh, uh, multi neurogenetic conditions and neurogenetic conditions in general, for that matter. Uh, when it comes to um, research, most research aimed at finding a cure or actually doing more medical research, as I mentioned already. Uh, uh, Ferdinando Squitieri um, from the, the Italian League for, for Huntington's research, he, he is absolutely uh, outstanding in the, in the way he carries on doing research, even, even in the, during a pandemic like this. And um, so that he's definitely been a, a role model um, for, for, for the effort that uh, he's been doing for, for, for the, the HD community. But then again, I would say that the HSG community as a whole, uh, I don't think I have one person that can pinpoint as my role model. I think that the, the community, the, the, the HD community itself has been uh, an incredible source of inspiration in that sense. And if we consider that I started my PhD with Huntington's, I did my PhD on Huntington's, so I didn't do a PhD on a very well-known condition that has a lot of, um, a, a lot of awareness already going on, like Parkinson's, like, I don't know, other uh, 
conditions like Alzheimer's or more common conditions like, like Alzheimer's, but it was more of a, as I said, been less, a lesser known condition with uh, a yet very, very keen uh, clinical research and uh, patient-based community that has been absolutely inspiring. I want to go a little off topic here um, and, and ask you about something. So people that follow or may follow you on Instagram will probably notice a, a lot of um, really stunning photos of the cities that you're in. Is, it, is photography a hobby? Is it or is it just more about capturing, sharing the beauty of those places and their architecture? I'm just I'm just curious because I, I tend to notice when they um, come through on, on my scroll that um, they are just stunning to look at. Thank you. Well, uh, at the moment, my, my Instagram profile is uh, is private at the moment because uh, of the clinical training and uh, as a policy. But uh, thank you. Yeah, I really like um, uh, photography. I, I'm an autodidact. I'm, I'm absolutely self-taught in that sense. I, I'm I'm in no way. I'm I'm not a professional photographer in any by any stretch of the imagination. But um, I think that in a way. That's that's been an evolution of how I moved when I moved from from Italy to the UK, in a sense that when I was in Italy, I I, I really enjoyed uh, writing, uh, fiction, non-fiction, but especially fiction back then. But then when I moved to the UK, I well, I sort of had to start off again when it came to to language because obviously English is not my first language and. Um, especially with the first time I, I moved to the UK, I felt like I, I wasn't myself anymore because I couldn't express myself the same way I would do in Italian. It was, uh, it was quite a, a, an interesting yet tough uh, moment to, to go through, I have to say, because it, it, it really makes you aware of the impact of language on, on your identity. But that said, uh, I probably switched to, to photography in that sense because photography speaks every language. So the sort of creative stream that I had in writing at that time, I just moved it to, I switched to, to the visual language of photography. So that's where I, I sort of developed an interest. And then I carried on, even though I probably now can feel a bit more conf confident in terms of writing in English as well, but um, I, I just picked up the passion for it and I, and I really like it. Well, you do a great job. I, the ones that I've seen um, have definitely piqued my interest in terms of places that I want to visit um, in the future when, <laughs> you know, when when traveling becomes an option again, I guess. Yeah, I can definitely recommend England. Yeah, it's some beautiful place around there. I just remember to bring an umbrella, but <laughs> there's some beautiful landscapes and sunsets that you can find here. There. And, I, and I really want to come back to the US as well. The, actually, the only times I've been to the US so far has been for the HSG meetings. So I've seen, I'm really glad in a way because I've seen places that people normally wouldn't visit. Uh, you know, if you go to, 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 to do some mainstream US tours, you go to New York, Los Angeles, or uh, Chicago, uh, Washington, you wouldn't really go to Tampa or Denver or Houston. And I'm really glad I did because it allowed me to see so many characteristical places that are, I mean, they're that, that not something that you would see in the most touristic places in the US. So it's been fascinating in that sense. Yeah, absolutely. I, I just want to wrap up with one more question for you. And that's, um, is there somewhere people can go to learn more about uh, this particular research that we talked about today, I know you mentioned the Journal of Huntington's Disease, um, or any yeah. other re HD research uh, or other research that you're involved in. Well, they can find my page on Google Scholar. So if they type my name on Google Scholar, they will find all, all my publications there. Um, when it comes to the, 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 the guidance itself, the guidance is available for free to download free but from the, the, the British Psychological Society. And uh, I will be giving you the, the link so that you can uh, signpost it uh, in the description of, the of this episode of the podcast, if you want, uh, so that they can download uh, the, the guidance for free. 
And uh, yeah, I would also recommend absolutely looking up the research done by Dr. Fiona Eccles and uh, Professor Jay Simpson, Jane Simpson, uh, uh, especially since they, they've been active far more than me, far, lo for far longer than me. So uh, there's a much more to learn from them than me in the first place. Well, we, we appreciate it, Dr. Zarati. I, I greatly thank you for your time today. It's been a fascinating conversation about the psychological aspects and the research that you're doing in HD. And, you know, wish you all the, the best on your continued ed endeavors. Well, thank you very much. It's been amazing to, to be hosted here. And thanks again for all the great work you're doing for, for researchers on HD worldwide. Thank you again for listening to this episode. I once again would like to extend my thanks to Dr. Zarati for his time and helping to call attention to the critical need regarding further research and focus on psychological interventions in Huntington's disease. If you would like to read the published guidance from the British Psychological Society or learn more about Dr. Zarati's research, you'll find a link to both included in the description for this podcast episode. Until next time, Thank you for listening to the HD Insights Podcast. Stay safe, be well, and take care. We hope you enjoyed this edition of the HD Insights Podcast. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to make sure you automatically get the latest episodes to your device. Please rate and review this podcast with your feedback so we can continue providing the best possible content. If you are interested in providing financial support for the work needed to produce this content, you can do so by becoming an ongoing sponsor or through a tax-deductible donation. To do so, please email us at info at hsglimited.org. That's I-N-F-O at hsglimited.org or by calling our toll-free number at 1-800-487-7671. Thank you for joining us on the HD Insights Podcast from the Huntington Study Group.